Well, let me start with a bit of a confession. I'm not a really big football fan. I'm sorry to say it. I understand the game. I enjoy watching it. I like I understand the athleticism of those athletes and just like the the insane amount of talent that they have. I get it. I get it. But I can't keep up to date with the goings on. I think some teams have moved in the NFL and there's, you know, I could probably if you gave me a map of North America and put the helmets of the teams on the sides, I could probably like do the kids activity sheet thing and draw lines to the cities where they're from. I could probably handle that. But uh, you know, I I just can't just can't do it. I do know that there was a game last weekend. So I've got that going for me. A big one too, right? But if I'm in confession mode, the reason that I know that there was a big game last weekend is because I follow The Rock on Instagram. And, uh, you know, he was a part of, I think, the opening ceremonies or the pregame ceremonies, and he was pumped about being. And so I saw, I don't know how many posts and video clips of The Rock getting ready for the Super Bowl. So, you know, there, there we go. Anyways, something that always comes up around Super Bowl Sunday is the commercials, right? I can think of, of, of some years past where the commentary around the commercials that played during the Super Bowl was actually, there was more of that than commentary around the game. People talked more about the advertisements than what actually happened on the field. It's almost in some sense like, a, like, a, like an international film festival. We've got all these, these uh, companies and organizations clamoring for the top spot of being the most effective, most memorable, most watched advertisement during the Super Bowl. And it makes sense. The Super Bowl is one of the most watched events in the world, probably the most watched event in the United States or North America, where they expected some 100 million viewers to tune in last Sunday. I was not one of them. So the advertisers do have this massive audience to reach. It was reported that last weekend, a 30-second commercial spot during the Super Bowl cost an advertiser somewhere between, the numbers I saw were between six and a half and seven million dollars for 30 seconds. And the people that were paying that bill said it was totally worth it. Like, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. Beyond just Super Bowl Sundays, companies in the U.S. spent nearly one quarter of a trillion dollars advertising in 2020. $250 billion spent on advertising in one country on the planet in one year. And for what? Really, it's to appeal to one of our most basic wants, needs, desires. The desire for happiness. Now on Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday, a company spends $7 million for a 30-second chance to say to half of the audience, your team lost, I'm sorry, this will make it better. And they spent $7 million to say to the other half of the audience, your team won, let's celebrate, this will make it better. And it works. It's worth it. Because happiness is what we live for. Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, all men and women... Anywhere he adds him, men, whatever. He's talking to all of us. Nobody's out here. All men and women seek happiness. This is without exception. 
whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves, which is a really interesting turn at the end of a quote on happiness, isn't it? Every choice we make is something we believe will make us more happy. What we long for in life is happiness. On the, on the surface level decisions we're making, but also at the deepest levels in our lives. Now this might look like us giving in to those advertisements. The $7 million worked out for someone because I'm going out and I'm getting that new car. I'm uh, doing that renovation I'm, I'm going to move and get more square footage. I'm going I'm to head, I'm going to follow the rock to the gym and we're going we're gonna to work out. That next drink, that next, whatever it is, it might look like us putting our, our noses to the grindstone, as it were, and just keeping our heads down at work while we put in time until we can retire. And then we will be happy. In either of those scenarios, either just putting our heads down until we can, can punch the clock for the last time, or looking for that next thing to bring happiness, we are looking to the future for happiness. Ultimately, I would suggest that every action, again, that you and I take is one that we believe will bring more happiness to our lives. Obviously, there's some nuance and factors that affect that, but ultimately, it's about that. Now, as we continue in our series uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher or preacher, I'll use those terms kind of interchangeably because translations do, he's the same as us. We're going to be in a big chunk this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can open up. We'll start at chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to kind of hop through to the end of chapter 2. So I won't read that whole section for us, but we will sort of drop in at key points. That's, he makes the same point through it all. But I will encourage you to, to take some time and read that chapter as well. The teacher in Ecclesiastes set out to explore all that's done under heaven. And he was determined to find what is good. And so he commits himself in this passage to research. The teacher's on a quest for what's good, what might bring him happiness, satisfaction, meaning in his life. And so in this next chapter and a half or so, we will see him pursue all kinds of things under the sun. Wisdom, enjoying comedy, laughter, pleasure, drink, food, projects, possessions, all of it. And with each stop on this quest, the teacher who started the book last week, remember how we started, says, everything is meaningless. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But as he, as he stops at each of these places on the quest today, he seems to catch just a hint that even though he's finding meaninglessness, there's a hint of happiness that just seems to be a little bit elusive. It just slips through his fingers like that vapor. The first stop on his quest is wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 13. He says, I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that's done under heaven. Again, that phrase under heaven is a key one, right? He uses it often under heaven, under the sun, talking about anything on this world. So God is exempt from that. 
chasing after knowledge. Many of us do it. We're headed for another degree. We're trying to get out of high school. We're trying to whatever. We're trying to learn the next thing, grow our minds in this way. Uh, This isn't something new that just our generation thinks we need to know everything. Solomon wrote about this 2,600 years ago. He was the wisest king who ever lived, and yet he sums up this pursuit of knowledge, of wisdom, as just another chasing after the wind. One translation says, or trying to shepherd the wind. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? Another maybe word picture for us to be, it's like trying to herd cats. Right? Well, we, the, the, the chuckles, no, this, this, this is an unsuccessful pursuit. And he confirms this conclusion with a proverb in verse 15, where he writes, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying, you know what? It doesn't matter how much we learn, how much wisdom I gather, we can't actually make something crooked straight. Wisdom can't fix this. Later in the book, in chapter 7, we will read a similar statement where he says, Consider the work of God. For who can straighten out who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Now that's really interesting that the teacher blames God for things not being as they should be. And this starts to point us again in another uh, towards another massive theme, both of this book and of the Bible as a whole, that we weren't made for this world as it is now, that things are not as they should be. He should again be pointing us back, reminding us back to Genesis chapter 3. After the first human sins sinned, the consequence was that they could no longer live in the presence of God. And so they were cast out of the presence of God, and, and the result was several curses or several consequences being put on all of creation. Sometimes we think, or we remember the story as just while Adam and Eve had consequences, the servant had consequences. But there was also a curse spoken over creation. The ground was cursed. We read that humanity would have to work hard to get the ground to produce the way that it was created to produce. Thorns and thistles and dandelions became a thing. The world itself became a place where tornadoes and hurricanes and sickness and death became a thing. The Apostle Paul would later speak of the groaning of creation in Romans chapter 8, where he says that it was subjected to futility. The world, creation itself, is subjected to vanity because of sin in the world. It's broken. It's it's been made crooked. Things are not as they were created to be. The teacher's next part of the quest is not just to gain wisdom. He did that in these first couple of verses, but it's to explore the idea of wisdom itself. And he compares wisdom and folly, but he finds that this too leaves him wanting. There's a reason people say that ignorance is bliss. Often, the more we know about something, an issue, the more weighty the topic gets on our shoulders, the heavier it is the more we know and understand and see the impacts of something like global poverty, the more it hurts, the heavier it is. The more we understand sex trafficking, the more we understand or learn about domestic abuse, the more we learn about anxiety and depression and pain and sickness and death, the more frustrated we can become because it just doesn't make sense to us. How can this be, we cry out. 
The teacher concludes, the more I knew, the sadder I became. I was listening to um, someone else actually preach this text this week, and, and he said, you know what? Consider the police officers that work in your town. Think of what they know, what they see. Consider the, the firefighters, even, who are often first responders when it comes to overdoses and stuff. Think about what they see and what they know and how that weighs on them. You and I, we don't want to know that. You can think of any number of professions or people that the more we know, the heavier it gets. The teacher concludes, the more I knew, the sadder I became. So he goes on to try something different. This is where chapter 2 starts for us. That's where the chapter break is. He goes after pleasure. He goes to enjoy the things that are good. But again, he, he finds it to be futile. Laughter, he says, is madness. And so he turns to wine while still guided by wisdom to see if even the fanciest drinks in the best places and the best locations with the best people would bring happiness. Maybe if we just live for the moment and that's it. But no. If we look back over even the past 10, 15, 20 years, how many times have we heard the story of, a, of an entertainer or a musician or an athlete who seemed to have it all but then died of an overdose or something? I'm pretty sure it was comedian Robin Williams who said he, he gave his life to making other people laugh so he didn't have to deal with the heartache inside. He was so deeply lonely that he, did, he took his life. He makes a big shift, the teacher does, in verse 4 again. So forget laughter, forget wine. I increased my achievements I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. The teacher throws himself at his work here. Maybe that will help. Maybe there will be happiness there. Development, project management, getting things done. Maybe that will finally do it. And with all that comes uh, power and money and more pleasure and more sex than any wealthy king could ever dream of. One commentator says this was as intense a consumerism as we've ever seen. Whatever he wants, he gets. And he writes to us in verse 12, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. Any fleeting thought that that might be nice, he got it. Imagine him on his iPhone scrolling through Amazon. Send, send, send. Just bring it all. Just bring it all. The Intelcom trucks are just lined up in front of the house, the palace, I guess, right? John, box, box, box. Whatever I wanted, I didn't deny my eyes. He's on the top of every influencer list. He's on the top of every business magazine, top list, every Forbes list. He had more than anyone before him and anyone since. Uh, David Gibson, a commentator out of the States, writes this. This is the stuff of secret dreams. Fame and fortune, the sky's the limit, and he seems to have reached it. And yet, when he gets there, he stands back, surveys his empire, and it's all quite pointless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He's actually gained nothing. The man who had everything says he actually had nothing. He discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our lives, in the same corners lurk the darkness of diminishing returns. In the end, achievements and pleasures do not last. Canadian actor and comedian Jim Carrey famously, and a little bit more recently than Solomon, said, I wish that everyone could get rich and famous so they could see that it's not the answer to anything. 
in this hunt for happiness, the preacher keeps getting let down by everything under the sun. He pursued everything. He achieved everything, but still happiness is fleeting. It's vanishing. It's, it's a vapor that he's trying to catch. But even more than that, there seem to be, as we read here, some dark clouds lurking on the horizon. He says, there is some good in all of these things. Let's not discount that there is good here. But he says, uh, he says that it's good to pursue wisdom over folly. It's better to be wise and live in the light instead of be uh, foolish and groping in the darkness. But he also comes to the distressing realization that at the end of life, wise or foolish, death comes to everyone. Verse 16, he says, For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come both will be forgotten. Everything that the preacher has explored left him feeling empty and then really crumbled under his realization of the brevity of life. And that impacts everything. Even though he was wise, that he made all the right calls, that he made all the right investments to amass this vast wealth, what's to stop everything he had to wind up in the lap of a fool as soon as he died? This question is a good one. For all of our toil, and that word toil shows up something like 15 times in this chapter, and should point us back to Genesis as well. It's a Garden of Eden word. For all of our toil and all of our effort, how much is it is really going to last? How much is anyone ever going to remember? And if we find questions like this depressing, maybe we haven't wrestled enough with the reality of our own mortality. Maybe we haven't thought about what will happen to our legacy in the next generation or two or ten. The reality is for most of us that not much that we will do under the sun will ever be remembered. Think about every history book ever written. I don't know how many there would be, probably a lot. But then think about the incredibly small number of men and women's names who are in those history books the incredibly small percentage of the billions and billions and billions of people who have lived that we ever even think about or talk about anymore. Ian Provane, a commentator, suggests that this section in Ecclesiastes is a sobering account of the relentless anxiety of the materialist who lives under the shadow of unavoidable death. It's an account of the relentless anxiety of the materialist who lives under the shadow of of unavoidable death. And let me suggest, this goes well beyond just the anxiety of the materialist. These words are equally haunting for generations of people today who are trying to chase that next big experience, that next big thing, that next big whatever that is that they feel might bring meaning to their lives. In the last um, couple of years, there's been a couple of really sort of high production quality climbing movies that have come out. Now, one of them's on Netflix called The Dawn Wall. And it's the story of a, you know, it's 15, 20-year journey of, of this famous climber in the States who then does this impossible project with a friend. And there's another one called uh, Free Solo. And it, too, is, I think it's about a 13-year project for this guy to figure out a way to climb several thousand feet in El Capitan in Yosemite Park without a rope. And in both these stories, they both get to the end, and they both finish their project, but then what? We, we went to see Free Solo in, in Banff when it was 
when it was out, it was, came out after the film festival or something, and they had it in the theater there. My wife and I went. And at the end, there's this really, like, haunting scene where the climber who's dedicated, I think it was 13 years, to going up and down this wall so many times, he had a notebook in his van that he went through that had every single move for however many 3,000 feet of climbing. Right hand here, left turn, pivot here, left hand here, all the way up. And he gets to the top. His girlfriend's there. They hug. A couple cameras there. Amazing you did this thing. And the next scene, he's hiked back down. And he's sitting in his van starting to work out because what's next? It's done. It's like, man, that's, there's got to be more to life than the next climb. For so many in our culture, we don't consider how to prepare for death, but instead we try to throw unlimited resources at avoiding it. Blaise Pascal again said, As men and women, we have not been able to cure death or misery or ignorance, so they have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. Since we can't figure a way to, to cure death or misery, we just ignore it. Maybe if we, if we pretend it's not here, we'll be happy, finally. We refuse to think about such things, and instead we distract ourselves with a million other things. He famously went on to say, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to sit quietly in his room. Our distractions are just everywhere. I don't know about you, maybe that, maybe that quote doesn't ring true for you, the, the inability to sit quiet in your room, but it did for me this week. Not the, not the unhappiness part, I, the, but my life and our lives are so often filled with so many distractions and I'm bombarded by distractions that I just can't some mornings even find time to sit still and be quiet. Sometimes it's only a few seconds. Sometimes like a good day I might get a few minutes and then it's like this thing, this thing, this thing, and our mind just races. He continues and says, Nothing is so unbearable for a man as to be in complete repose without passions, without business, without distraction, without application. Then... He feels his nothingness, his abandonment, his insufficiency, his dependence, his impotence, his emptiness. Incontinent from the depths of his soul, there will arise boredom and melancholy and sadness and sorrow and spite and despair. Often the reason that we can't wrestle with the realities that Solomon is starting to pull out here for us is that our schedules are too full. We're too distracted to even find a moment of quiet. I might be speaking to a certain age demographic here and those younger, but who remembers the days before iPhone? A couple of, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a generational divide there. Do you remember what it felt like to be bored? To actually have nothing to do? We so often don't let ourselves feel those feelings anymore, do we? As soon as there's a break, what do we do? We're, we're in such a lightning-fast culture. I've got 30 seconds to wait for my lunch in the microwave, and what do I do? Pull up my phone. Let's scroll through here. Let's check this. Let's do that. I heard one stat that suggested that the average, the average iPhone user picks up their phone 2,000 times a day. That's got to be a misquote, right? Like that, I, I'm trying to wrap up, okay, 24 hours, okay, 60 minutes, an hour. Like it, 
sleeps hopefully some of those hours, right? Like it's got to, but even if it was 200 times a day or 100 times a day, what's the cost of that? What's the cost of that constant reaching for our phones? Something I'm working at and some days are better than others is actually trying to change my relationship with my phone, with my devices. I try to put them to bed early and I try to let them sleep in. Because as soon as I pick it up, right, it's that constant dinging, even if the notifications are off, that if it's in the room, studies have shown if your phone is in the room with you, you almost might as well be looking at it. It's crazy. In many ways, I and, and we and many of us have lost the ability to wrestle with deep questions, to even think deeply about things or think critically about things because we don't allow ourselves time to think. Second generational question, who remembers life before Google? Okay, that's about the same, same mix. Or even before Google in your pocket, right? I, again, read another stat that suggests a new or a never-before-asked question is typed into Google every three seconds. How many questions can there possibly be? Every three seconds, something new is being typed into Google. If I don't know something now, uh, before Google, in like the Stone Age, you actually had to work to find an answer, right? I, I remember computers starting to come into junior high and whatever. You had to go to a book. You had to go to a library. You had to actually ask someone and have a conversation. You had to do things like think and reason. Now, if I don't know something or if my kids ask me something that they don't know and I don't know, what do I do? Three seconds, beep, boop, beep. I've got a billion answers to your question. Who knows if any of them are right? <laughs> Chances are one of a billion should be, right? Now, don't hear me say that Google and iPhones or your smartphone of choice are inherently bad. But in many ways, they're not helping, especially when they stop us from thinking deeply about our lives. The reality is, if, if our impending death in 100 years, none of us will be here, if our impending death does not inform the way that we live, then death is something that we're pretending does not exist. I'm not sure that's a healthy way to live. Peter Kreeft uh, is a theologian who helps us understand Pascal's comments here. He says this, If you are a typical modern, so that's all of us, we're all in this modern age, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room. And so to deal with that hole, you paper it over with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. Or he says, then you find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. And that rhinoceros, that big animal, is wretchedness and death. How in the world will you deal with the rhinoceros? How will you hide that rhinoceros? Easy. You cover it with a million mice. No rhinoceros anymore. It's all about multiple diversions. We divert our thinking. We distract ourselves from dealing with that thing. And so what Solomon has done in this section from the, the middle of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2 is he's gone after and got rid of all those million mice that we distract ourselves with. He says, let's start talking about the rhino in the middle of the room. Because death is going to come for every single one of us. And we need to confront that truth head on. And once we do so, then we're ready to start seeing kind of the, the, the glimmers of light start shining through this book. So what does all of this mean? 
Well, so far, almost two chapters into the book of Ecclesiastes, it's been, let's say, less than encouraging. If you came for a warm, fuzzy message this morning, I'm sorry, so far we're not there. The teacher has, has gone and burst all the bubbles of the things we thought we would find happiness in. Pleasure, profit, materialism, consumerism, wisdom, laughter, all the things, everything under the sun. He says, no, it won't do it. He says, none of these things will keep us from death. But then in verse 24, he makes an interesting turn and actually starts to go after death itself. Ecclesiastes 2, 24, we read, there is nothing better for a person than to eat and drink and enjoy his work or his toil. Now, this might sound like that old nihilistic saying, well, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you'll die. And as I read that, I've got the Dave Matthews band playing in my head. That's, that's... But to read it that way is to miss the point of what the teacher is saying. The teacher is saying, eat and drink and enjoy your work because that's what we're made for. That's what God has given. These things are not just means to an end, but they are gifts from the Creator. And when we pursue any of these things that he's explored rightly, well, they actually point us towards that life of meaning. We talked about this a little bit last week. When we, all these things in creation are meant to point us to the Creator, to draw our hearts into worship. When we pursue work as something that gives glory to someone who is not under the sun, then we'll find meaning. And the teacher actually hinted at this in verse 10. We sort of glossed over that passage, but go back to verse 10. And he says, his heart found pleasure in all that toil. And again, we're pointed back to Genesis 2. In Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world, what was Adam called to do? He wasn't just created to sit in a lawn chair on the beach and eat fresh fruit all day, was he? Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to toil, and to watch over it. I love how uh, David Gibson again breaks this down for us. It's a bit of an extended quote, so bear with me. He says, When we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that reality can stop us from expecting too much from all of the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. We see them as gifts, not as means to an end. He says, Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end, securing the ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. He says, ordinarily, we eat and drink simply to fuel and enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose and very likely make a reputation for ourselves and to achieve success. He says, but what if, what if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? I've used the matrix finale a couple of times. I tried to use a sh one that didn't work at all last week, but... If you remember The Matrix, which is, again, dating myself and those who know the movie, they meet in the cafeteria of the ship, and the, everyone gets this bowl of just, like, brown mush. It looks like oatmeal, right? They say, no, this is, this is everything you need. Everything your body needs to survive and be healthy and strong, all the things, is in this bowl of mush. Now, God could have done that 
and given us an endless supply of mush to live forever. However, God gave us steak. God, God gave us wine. God gave us fresh roasted coffee. God gave us all these things. And they're not meant to be ends in and of themselves, but they're men, means to be a, a joy that, that points us to someone who loves us. And if God was so good that he didn't give us some nutrition brick to eat twice a day, but instead I could have bacon and eggs in the morning, I could have a salad, I guess, for lunch, I could have fruit in between, all these things, right? And somebody must love me. He says, what if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? And what if it, what if it is that death shows us that this is how we are meant to live. To be generous, to be faithful, to look at the gifts we have every single day. It's striking as well that if, if we read chapter 2, 4 to 9, this where, where the teacher set out to accomplish everything and he built all the things, he had the gardens, he had the buildings, he had all of this stuff. It really looks like he's trying to recreate Eden. He's trying to build himself a paradise. It's as though he's trying to to construct and rebuild his own version of God's grace in the world. I've got people, I've got companionship, I've got food, I've got, I've got all the things. Now, God did create a perfect world, but sin has cracked it. Sin has made it crooked. And so we get hints and feelings that something's not right, that, that we don't belong here. And maybe especially as Christians, we feel like things are not as they should be, and, and I was made for another space but this is because we are limited. We are creatures. We are creation, not the creator. And so we tend to try and make our world suit us, find the, the right group of people, the right location, the right all the things. If we can, we can get this world to fix us, then we're great. One pastor that I listened to a lot, I mentioned him last week, uh, Mark Sayers in Melbourne, said that the human project in the West, the things that we have been striving for for the last 100 years, 100 and some years, has been to conquer and harness and control nature. And we thought we'd done it. So then we moved on from trying to control nature to try and control human nature. And you can see this in the, the language of, of ideology and what you should believe and how you should treat people, all, all the things. So we're trying to control human nature to think this way. He says, that's why in Western culture, because we thought we had conquered nature, we're so shocked when nature bites back with the virus or with weather or with earthquakes, with tsunamis or with flooding or any of these sorts of things because we thought we'd conquered nature. We're, we're past this. What's the problem? Whereas many other cultures in the world don't have that same audacity or that same, can I say, arrogance and understand that nature is something bigger than ourselves. Of course nature is going to bite back. It's nature. We cannot master the world. That's what the preacher, that's what the teacher is saying. But all of a sudden in the last couple of verses of chapter 2, we begin to see that the world is a gift from God. And the things that we have, they're not gods in themselves, but they are gifts meant to point us to God. And they're good when used in the way they were meant to. We read this in verse 24. I have seen this, and when he says this, it's the enjoyment of food and drink and work. I've seen that this is from God's hand. It is a gift for us. 
Stanley Gradenus um, concludes this way. He says, the teacher's message then is that since all of our worldly, endeav- worldly endeavors are futile, since all of our striving apart from God is futile, we ought to find enjoyment in the gifts God gives us every day. We ought to savor the moment and find enjoyment in our present eating and drinking and work because these are God's gifts to us. He says the New Testament continues to the same emphasis. To be sure, the New Testament knows of a life beyond where there's a future heaven and a future earth where there's no more mourning or crying or pain in Revelation 21. But he says Jesus also teaches us to savor God's gifts in the here and now. He teaches us to be content with our lives now, to find happiness today, not in something that we might achieve tomorrow. What does Jesus teach in Matthew chapter 6? Don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it's the Gentiles who strive for all these things. Those who don't yet know God strive for those things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first, seek first, toil for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. We read in verse 26 that, that the Gentiles miss this mark of life. Literally in, in the text in verse 26, it says that, um, that the sinner gives to the task of gathering and accumulating. And sometimes when we read that word sinner in the text, often we think of someone who's done something wrong who's now far from God. But here it's literally someone missed the mark. They're aiming at under the sun instead of at God. So those that, who, are, who are striving and working under the sun miss the point of all the gifts, of the, of the accumulation, of the, of the wisdom, of the gathering. Jesus' followers know the mark. It's to seek first the kingdom of God. God will take care of the rest. Paul also encourages Christians similarly to live their lives grateful for God's gifts. And he writes in Colossians chapter 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your heart, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When Paul says, whatever you do, that includes the lunch we're probably going to enjoy in a little bit. It includes our drinking. It includes our work. We ought to thank God every single day for his good and wonderful gifts. And we ought to enjoy those gifts every day. Because if we don't enjoy those gifts, we actually turn our backs on the gift giver. We snub the giver of those gifts. But if we enjoy the gift for what it is, a gift from God, we enjoy our food, we enjoy our drink, we enjoy our toil, God will be pleased. And so enjoy God's gifts every day. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this text. Jesus, thank you that, that you came and you showed us how, how to live this out, even. How to live out the, the, the perfect relationship with God and with creation, with the gifts, with one another. Holy Spirit, I pray that even even right now, again, this moment, and as we go from here and through the week, that you would work in our hearts uh, to show us and reveal to us 
where we are elevating the gift over the giver. Where we have these, these, these disordered desires, where we're going after things, whatever it was, the whole list that we read. Pleasure. Achievements. Possessions. Wisdom, even. Reveal those disordered desires in our heart and help us reorder them so that you are on top, that you are the, the, the top of the list in our lives. Forgive us for when we have mixed those things up and we, when we have chased idols, looking for things in creation to bring us happiness and meaning. And God, when only you can do that. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are so patient and kind and good to us as we figure this out and as we take two steps forward and one step back and two steps forward and three steps back and as, as we continue to go towards you, thank you for your, your loving kindness that continues to draw us to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.